Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. And when you think about it, our lives are made up of these moments of choice, that you could almost define as that space between like we feel something and then we choose how we're going to respond to it. And so the more we are responding to whatever's happening, whether it's an emotion trigger or something happening in our environment, from a place of how do I want to show up? You know, what do I want to express? The more our lives begin to reflect what we have to contribute or, or how, how we want to be. You're listening to Dr. Aprilia West on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. So... We're human and we all experience emotions. And sometimes those emotions can really push us around and get us out of sort of alignment with who we want to be. And today we have Dr. Aprilia West, who is going to be talking all about emotion efficacy. And she has this skills-based program where she integrates ACT and some skills from DBT to help you learn to understand your emotions, respond to them more effectively, and continue to kind of live in a life that's alignment with your values. I'm curious, Yael, what was your reaction to the episode? Well, one of my main take-home messages from the episode, which was a great episode, is the way that we can learn to relate to our emotions differently. So it's not necessarily that when we have our emotions that we should feel differently or um, that we should expect a different experience. It's, it's really about learning to have a different kind of relationship with your emotions. And that's kind of an abstract concept. But when I think about it, there's all these ways that I think emotions get experienced as being uncomfortable or as being informative in a particular way. And we can often really naturally just respond to them in impulsive ways. And I think if we sort of take a step back and see our emotions with a little bit more perspective, we have this opportunity to like develop a different kind of relationship like a friendlier relationship or a less fearful relationship. And it just allows you to work with them more flexibly, which is really what acceptance and commitment therapy as well as DBT, dialectical behavior therapy is all about. And Debbie, I think you're smack in it right now. We were just talking earlier. You're doing your taxes (laughs) Sunday night. This is painful. (laughs) So how are you doing with your emotion efficacy? Well, Okay. I, I don't think either of you two are really striking me as procrastinators, but I do have a procrastination streak and I have a true hatred of all things that involve paperwork, you know, admin type work, policies and procedures. It's just so boring to me. So I have, you know, I actually am a few days, well, over a week ahead of the deadline, so it could be worse, but to even just tackle that pile of papers to log on to TurboTax. I mean, to me, it's just like, I have to kind of override the desire to avoid because I find it tedious, boring, frustrating. You know, there's that anxiety of, (laughs) am I going to have to pay or get a refund? So to me, it's one of the more unpleasant, a lot's showing up. Um, But I know there's a lot ahead for me this week. And so I'm just having to, you know, dive right into that stack of papers and 
go for it. I think so, people can relate to that feeling and it is, it, yeah, it can sort of even just wanting to not even look at your computer. I, I had a client once who had a folder on his computer that was called emails that I will never open. <laughs> And he would put all of his anxious emails in there. And that's what we do. Like, that's our tendency as humans. We, we either, we kind of respond in two ways. Either the emotion comes on and we get so entangled in it and overrun by it that we just are running with it. And, you know, some of the impulsive behavior we're lashing out or we do these avoidance strategies. We opt out, we give up, we procrastinate, we don't go, we try and distract ourselves and numb ourselves, we obsessively overthink and you know, think about things, problem solve. Or one of my favorites is we like try and speed through it, like speed through it as fast as we can. I even remember when I was doing my first workshop in Santa Barbara, it was a DBT workshop. And I was so anxious about putting on this this DBT workshop that I was go- driving downtown early in the morning and I ran a stop sign like on one of these little city streets and I got pulled over by a cop. Oh God. <laughs> oh, no. On my way to the DBT workshop in front of the Family Therapy Institute where it was happening. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> walk of shame, right? <laughs> and I think that's what we we tend to do is we emotions can feel really overwhelming overwhelming and it really is a skill of how to maybe open up and allow them to be there, but also respond effectively in our lives. And that's what Dr. West is going to talk all about with us today. She even has a little experiential exercise she's going to do with me, which is kind of fun. And I think for therapists will be helpful as well to, for that to be modeled about what it looks like in the therapy room or even for you to try at home. So I hope you like this episode. Maybe it'd be helpful for you, Debbie, with all of your taxes. Yes. I will keep it in mind as I, you know, carry through the pain of income taxes. (laughs) Dr. Aprilia West is a Los Angeles-based licensed clinical psychologist, trainer, executive coach, and founding partner of CoEvolve, an organizational consulting firm. She has also served as an advisor, organizational consultant, mediator, and executive coach for Fortune 500 companies, entertainment industry executives, U.S. members of Congress, and national and international nonprofit advocacy groups and campaigns. Dr. West is recognized as an expert in emotion efficacy and authored Emotion Efficacy Therapy, which helps people excel under intense stress and distress. She has extensive experience in performance training, working with executives, creatives, and leaders to help them access their full potential and to cultivate resilience in the face of difficulty and challenge. Welcome, Dr. West. Thank you so much, Diana. Yeah, it's so great to see you. We got to meet each other in person. We're actually fairly close by. I'm up here in Santa Barbara and you're not far from me in LA. So it was great to meet with you in person on a beautiful spring weekend a couple of weeks ago. That was great. Yeah. And today we're going to talk all about emotion efficacy, which is your specialty. And I thought it would be good maybe just for our listeners to open up what is emotion efficacy and why does it really matter? <laughs> great. That's a great opening question. Um, you know, emotion efficacy is kind of this nerdy term. And to talk about it, I think we have to start with why do our emotions really matter? And uh, for me, I think it's that we, you know, we end up so many times in a clinical context talking about emotions as problems when actually our emotions are really important messengers that tell us what we're experiencing uh, so that we can find our way or navigate our lives in a way that works for us, that's meaningful. And um, for example, emotions tell us if we're in emotional or physical pain, they tell us what we love. They tell us what we hate. They tell us when we feel safe or threatened. Um, They tell us what we want to live for or what we're willing to die for. So we really need our emotions you know, almost as a compass to guide us. And so um, ultimately being able to experience whatever emotions arise and being able to respond powerfully to them uh, allows us to create what we really want, even in the face of stress or distress. So could you tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to working with emotion efficacy? Sure. Uh, Well, before I um, entered the field of psychology, I actually worked in politics as a speechwriter and a policy analyst. 
and then was uh, actually a staff songwriter in the music industry for a while in Los Angeles. And um, as you can imagine, getting exposure to both of those uh, different fields, I saw people in all, you know, parts of the continuum of emotion efficacy. And I could see how much more agency people had when they were able to have their emotions, but stay focused on what mattered to them and how much more powerful they were with their lives. Um, And when I entered my graduate training for psychology, I was really interested in finding a way to offer more of that to people. Um, So I was delighted when I stumbled into third wave CBT therapy, because I feel like so much of that is oriented around this idea that, you know, we don't need to change the pain or get away from it, but rather how do we move with our humanity um, into who we are and what we have to offer in the world. Um, So ultimately I believe that if, if, um, if people don't have emotion efficacy, they end up stuck in a default mode where, their emotions run their lives and they're not really able to cultivate what they have to, to bring to the world. So that was my inspiration for, for working on this. So emotions are part of being human. And oftentimes we think of them as they're the problem. We just need to get rid of it. And I, I think I've heard that a million times in my practice of, can you just get rid of my anxiety? Can you help me stop thinking about this? And I think clients come in to our practices requesting that from us. Absolutely. And that you have actually a different response to that question of, can you get rid of it when you're talking about emotion efficacy? That's right. Because, and, and, and um, I, I, it sounds like you're having a similar experience to me, and I'm sure lots of clinicians do, um, being essentially sort of the deliverers of quote unquote bad news, which is we as humans cannot get rid of our emotions. Um, We cannot get rid of emotional pain. That is just something that we uh, experience. Um, And that's a good thing in a lot of ways, right? Because it's what allowed us to survive when we were cavemen and cavewomen. And we needed to know that, you know, the fear that we experience looking into the eyes of a saber-toothed tiger means, you know, run because it's better to (laughs) not to be lunch. Um, But what, what I think is really important for people to understand when they come into the room, even if they've experienced their emotions as dangerous or threatening or overwhelming or interfering with their life, is that um, you, know, you can shift your relationship with your emotions so that it's powerful, so that you can have that fear, but it doesn't have to stop you. Um, and that there's often really important information in your emotions about what matters to you and what you could do. Uh, to create more of what you want. Right. And if we attempt to get rid of the emotion, we also get rid of that component of what matters. And it's the, That's right. the, it's the sidestepping or avoiding or thinking, trying to think your way out of this that actually creates most of the, the suffering in, in our lives. And it's actually in order to get to our values, we have to touch the suffering. I mean, we have to touch the pain, maybe not the suffering. We have to go, we have to, to um, make contact with that. Yeah. Our values. And, and don't you think too, it's even like just to get in touch with who you are, Mm -hmm. you know, to really know who you are is to understand, you know, what you care about, what you feel, what you experience, how you see the world Um, and to be able to connect to what you have to bring to the world um, requires that you are someone who's in touch with how you feel. Um, when you think about it, emotions are really what motivate us to do anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems that some people experience emotions more intensely than others. And I've seen that in my practice, just this varying degree of the intensity in which people feel emotions and also their ability to regulate them or be able to be with them. And I wanted to ask you, why is that the case? Why are there differences in terms of baseline emotion reactivity and also emotion regulation? Yeah. Well, I think you're asking two things here. One is like, how do we get the way we are Mm -hmm. um, in terms of our relationship with emotions? And then secondly, what does that look like? What is the continuum? And you've, you've kind of touched on that already, but to, to take your first question, you know, people are really complex 
sort of versions of neurodiversity, right, resulting from uh, a range of biopsychosocial factors, um, which means that biologically we have a predisposition um, in terms of, you know, how sensitive or reactive we are. Um, we also believe that learning experiences can impact uh, how we respond to emotions, for instance, um, and you'll be familiar with this as a DBT-trained therapist, um, consistent socially invalidating environments can actually increase uh, emotional reactivity. Right. So socially invalidating would be something like a child who's crying and the parent comes up to them and says, you're fine. It's okay. Yeah, you know, exactly. What's the matter? What, what are you crying for? I'll give you something to cry about, right? That's a socially invalidating environment that actually the child's going to cry louder. Yeah. And the message, the message there is that you can't trust your feelings. Exactly. And, exactly. and that, or that your feelings maybe don't really matter. And so then that kicks off a, an effective uh, pattern that I'll, that I'll touch on in just a minute. The other, the other way that people um, develop either more reactivity or, or various temperaments has to do with how their learning experiences reinforce emotion avoidance, um, which then can lead also to uh, another fancy term called distress intolerance. And that's this belief or perception that you can't tolerate aversive emotion. Right. So that would be an example. That would be the kid is crying, but the mom says, Oh, well look over there. There's, you know, something else to look at, or let me buy you a candy bar, or, you know, trying to distract the child from the feeling as well. And that we learn, we learn to do that for ourselves to just distract ourselves from the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And then the implicit learning there or message is that, you know, when you're feeling something too painful, you can't stay with it. You exactly. need to do something to change it or shift your attention. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you know, because we all grow up in really different environments or in, in cultural uh, circumstances, uh, the skillfulness that we learn either through modeling by parents or, you know, just that we have access to depending on what kind of resources are around us can be really different. And I think what's really interesting uh, when you're a parent is just to notice how there's a transaction that happens. So one child's response elicits a certain response in me that then may reinforce their pattern. Mm -hmm. And that can be the case in, you know, parent-child relationship, but it also can be the case in our partner relationship or relationships with our parents. And we get in this sort of dance of uh, regulating each other's emotions or dysregulating each other's emotions by how we're responding or mirroring mm -hmm. each other as well. The approach that you've developed in helping people become more um, emotionally effective is an approach called emotion efficacy therapy. And I'm wondering if we could start just sort of describing this, this treatment that you've developed and also talk about why it may be helpful for pretty much anyone, which means it's, it's transdiagnostic. It's not specific to you use this for somebody that has OCD or somebody that has an eating disorder, but rather all of us could benefit from some training and emotion efficacy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the emotion efficacy therapy protocol is an, uh, an ACT-based protocol um, that integrates ACT with some DBT coping skills in an exposure-based skills practice. And um, it is transdiagnostic. I would even say it's a-diagnostic because like you said, um, anyone can benefit from uh, increasing their emotion efficacy. Uh, and we have treated people struggling with a wide range of problems, including everything from complex trauma, panic disorder, OCD, anxiety, to major depression, bipolar disorder, and addiction. Uh, and the thing about the protocol is even if you already have good or strong emotion efficacy, you can still improve your performance. And I use this both in my clinical work and my coaching and consulting practice. Um, and it, it really does teach people how to shift their relationship with their emotions so that it's more powerful so that, you know, you can really stay connected to what do I want to create even in the face of stress and distress moment to moment. And when you think about it, our lives are made up of these moments of choice 
that you could almost define as that space between like we feel something and then we choose how we're going to respond to it. And so the more we are responding to whatever's happening, whether it's an emotion trigger or something happening in our environment from a place of how do I want to show up? You know, what do I want to express? The more our lives begin to reflect what we have to contribute or, or how, how we want to be. Yeah. And this concept of it being applicable to everyone. I, I remember in graduate school, my first exposure to dialectical behavior therapy. And for, for those who don't know what DBT is, it's actually a treatment that was designed for people that were chronically suicidal and, you know, nothing else really worked and people that experienced really high levels of emotion dysregulation and interpersonal dysregulation and behavioral dysregulation. And Marsha Linehan was just brilliant in developing this really groundbreaking at the time treatment that integrated both acceptance and change and had a lot of skills associated with it. And so we're thinking, you know, we're thinking about, okay, this is a program that was developed for people that were really in a struggling place. But I remember the first time I read through her manual thinking, oh my gosh, this is what I need. I need this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I need this to survive graduate school. I need this to survive yes. my relationship. I need this to decide my friendships mm-hmm. or just being alone with myself. And I think that what, what what's sort of been embedded in these, these treatments for, quote, diagnoses, psychology is now coming to a place where we're seeing, okay, we all kind of need this. We all need ACT. We all need elements of DBT. And I think what you've done here is you've taken that as, as sort of a, a model where we don't all need the full package where we have groups once a week and coaching sessions with a therapist. And, but, but you've taken it in a, in a way that's really applicable and usable and in short term where people can get some of these skills uh, and utilize them in their life uh, in, in a way that's um, really approachable. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the components of of this treatment that you've that you've put together and, and what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think as I mentioned before, it's uh, it's an eight week act based protocol, and there are essentially four components. Um, the first is emotion awareness, which is really just teaching people, you know, what does it mean to experience an emotion. You know, how do you know what you're experiencing? And so we talk about um, accessing emotion through the body, through sensations, through uh, cognition or the thoughts that come up, um, through feeling labels. So that's the interpretation of what's happening in the moment. And then also um, being able to recognize urges as a part of emotion. And so they start by just simply... Uh, being able to identify or observe these different parts of an emotion when they're activated. Sometimes we'll do this using music because music is such a great way to, you know, create emotion. Um, And they just notice during this, while the song is playing, you know, what am I feeling in my body? What are the thoughts that arise? Um, What are uh, the feelings that, that, you know, I can identify and then what does it make me want to do or not do? Um, So we'll start with that. And then building on emotion awareness, we move into something called mindful acceptance, which is simply observing and allowing that experience. And so we teach very specifically, what does it mean to actually allow emotional experience? And how is that distinct from avoidance? What are the consequences of avoiding your emotions versus allowing them or accepting them. And so they get to practice with that. Uh, And we do some emotion surfing where we uh, intentionally have them think about something that is activating, usually a distressing situation. And then they practice noticing all parts of the emotion and um, taking the acceptance skills that we teach them, leaning into that Um, So they learn that they can actually surf through an emotion wave and that, you know, if they don't do the kind of behaviors that increase emotion um, and make it get bigger and last longer, that they can actually surf through an emotion wave in a fairly brief time. And that, that component of mindful acceptance is really 
an embodied one where it seems that, you know, we're, we're using our bodies to allow, not just our, just not just our minds, but actually physically allowing mm-hmm. the experience to be there and to lean into it and relax around it and breathe into it. And, and I, I really feel that the degree to which we do that is in direct proportion to the degree to which we're going to experience freedom. Hmm. And when we're all tensed up around, I don't want to feel this thing, at least for me, when I'm in that place, whatever it is that I'm not wanting to feel is in direct proportion to how much suffering I'm in around it. So those first two skills alone, I feel like are game changers for people being able to identify I'm in it. I'm I'm having an emotion right now. (laughs) What are the components of this emotion? And then can I allow it to be here? And that just slows things down enough and gives us enough space to then move into, okay, now what am I going to, what I want to do here? Yes, exactly. And, and that is, so those first two skills create the foundation for people to identify what we call in in emotion efficacy therapy, the moment of choice. And the Mm -hmm. moment of choice is where you get to decide how you're going to respond to what you're experiencing. So it's, it's, it's creating enough space to be able to ask that question. Because of course, if we're resisting emotion and we're tensing up around it, like you're saying, um, usually we don't have access to what really matters to us mm-hmm. to be able to act on that. Right. Right. Tara Brock talks about we leave our bodies and we go into our, our control our control tower, which is That's our head. It. Yes. And and, and what we actually, we're sort of addicted to leaving our bodies and going into our control yeah. tower. So we actually yeah. have to get our bodies and our minds in the same, same plane, right? Which is bringing our minds back to the present moment and what we're experiencing that moment. That's right. Being yeah. in the present moment and then allowing whatever is there. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yes. And so the, the next component of, of emotion efficacy therapy is called values-based action, which, you know, will be very familiar to ACT folks in that we help people begin to clarify uh, what their values are and across specific domains. And then in the moment, you know, in a moment of stress or distress, learning how to connect to what matters to them and what, what it would look like to act on that instead of the emotion. Mm-hmm. So very powerful intervention. And then the, the last component is called mindful coping. And we do coping a bit differently than um, in DBT. And that is that we first... Uh, ask people to practice mindful acceptance, so the observing and allowing of their emotional experience. Um, And then if they're not able to connect to what matters to them, maybe they're still really activated, even though they're they're practicing the emotion surfing. Um, We give them specific skills to help downshift the activation in the service of being able to reconnect with what matters so they can act on that. So it's never taught as, uh, I think sometimes, you know, feel free to disagree with me, but I think sometimes when coping skills are taught in DBT, they can end up being substitute forms of avoidance or distraction, where the function of the behavior is to actually get away from the emotional pain, instead of uh, doing the behavior because they want to be able to connect to their values, or they want to... um, you know, uh, get to a place where they aren't going to act on their emotional urge. So yeah. we are really explicit about never just, you know, using a coping skill before you have made space for what you're experiencing and identifying that moment of choice. Um, and we, we set it up this way specifically with the acceptance part of the treatment in the, the beginning, because mm-hmm. we wanted to make sure that that was, you know, established as, sort of the first thing you do is to make space for this and then powerfully choose how am I going to navigate this? And that might mean using somatic coping skills to, you know, try to downshift activation or using coping thoughts or radical acceptance to shift your perspective about the situation or in real emergency situations, finding ways to either distract yourself or just remove yourself from the situation. Right. And I think with, with DBT, the premise of the, and the, a lot of these coping skills come from the distress tolerance model or, or module from DBT. And the premise of, of even that module was, this is not something you do all the time. 
And this is something you use short term to not make things worse. So if you think about the treatment being utilized first for people that were, you know, self-harming or suicidal, we want to get you into a safe place first. And we need to get you out of like knife in hand. And sometimes for us, the knife in hand is not that we're about to self-harm, but it's I'm about to say something that I really shouldn't say to my partner that could do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. And I need to just leave the room. Mm-hmm. Or to my kids, I am so dysregulated. I'm about to just lose it and yell. And I need to, you know, go for a walk and come back and then deal with the situation. And so it's a short term distraction. That mm-hmm. would be an example of just leaving the situation. But it's not that I leave the room and I never come back. That's right. That, that, that we actually come back when we have a little bit more space to then effectively do values-based behaviors or yes. respond more effectively. So I think that's an, yeah, that's an important distinction in, mm-hmm. in that uh, we don't want to chronically avoid uh, or distract. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's right. So the, it really see, we've talked about this, this approach is really being exposure based. And I think when people think about exposure, they think about, you know, making someone with OCD touch dirty doorknobs, but mm-hmm. this is more mm-hmm. exposure based in the sense of exposure to your emotional experience right. and then using skills in the actual yeah. um, ex- exposure with, with a therapist. Yeah. And I think it would be fun for you to sort of describe that, but then also for us to do a little uh, example of sure. it and maybe sure. I could get some free therapy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to, I love your description of touching dirty doorknobs. I mean, it's not, it's not actually that different. Um, In fact, I would say it's not different because for a lot of people, their emotions feel like dirty doorknobs. Yeah. For a lot of people making space or hanging out with, excuse me, difficult emotions feels like dirty doorknobs or, or whatever else um, it is that, that is a feared stimulus for them. So um, the, but the, to answer your question, the exposure component of, of emotion efficacy therapy is, um, it's a very structured, uh, practice that we do in every session and the theory behind it as, you know, you probably know, but just in case, uh, there are other people listening who aren't familiar is this idea that, um, when we learn in a certain state, we're more easily able to recall those same skills and learning when we're in a similar state. So the idea is that we practice these skills when we're activated and that way we're building the, the muscle to access those same skills when we're upset outside of the therapy session. And so um, at the end of each session of emotion efficacy therapy, the client has an opportunity to pick a situation that they find activating or distressing, and then they are practicing whatever the skill is that they've learned that week. Um, so that hopefully then when they're out in quote unquote real life and they encounter distress, they can remember how to use that skill. Right. And I think the difference is sort of like if you were learning to play the ukulele and you just went every week to and got instruction without ever picking up a ukulele, you're not going to be (laughs) as effective as if you're sitting there with the ukulele, trying it out and seeing where you're getting stuck and where, you know, where it's difficult for you and how it actually feels to do Mm -hmm. it. That's where I think that for me, really good therapy is Mm -hmm. when we're in the room and we're actually coming up against the, the, the very feared thing right there together. Here it is right now. And that's what we walk away with change. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, when we're feeling activated, we don't have access to the same behavioral repertoire or choices that we do when we're feeling relaxed. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to me that any therapy um, is effective without this experiential component. And I know, you know, I know there's a certain amount of exposure, I think, even in talk therapy, but um, it's just so important for us to be able to um, know what it like, what it's like to feel either really scared or really angry, and still just allow that experience to happen without acting on it or doing the other ineffective behaviors we do. Because let's face it, it feels really unnatural mm-hmm. not to do the things that we've rehearsed over and over again. Right. You know, it feels really unnatural when. Um, when, when I, you know, will ask a client, you know, the next time your partner says something critical to you, stop and just 
notice what's happening in your body or notice the thoughts that are coming up and, and surf through that emotion wave. You know, it's not what we're wired to do on a really primitive level, which is to figure out how to survive that situation. I'd love to do an exercise together. And this could be Great. one that therapists could then, you know, try out with their clients and probably in conjunction of having your book, help them out <laughs> with sure. some of that. And then also it could be one that listeners that maybe even aren't in therapy could try on their own. I like, I like the emotion surfing as okay. something that I do a lot with clients or surfing emotion surfing. So I think that would be a good one for us to do a little practice with. Could you leave me in? That's great. Yeah, absolutely. And just for the listeners, just to, as a reminder that, so emotion surfing is um, applying the mindful acceptance skills of just observing and accepting when you're in a activated state or a triggered state. So we're literally surfing through the emotion wave that comes from, from an emotion trigger. And I'm, I'm guessing you might have an example of something that's triggering or activating that we could work with. Sure. Well, it's so funny because we talked a couple of weeks ago and I had a completely different problem than I have now, which I think is hmm. a good example of our problems that feel so important and, <laughs> you know, of massive importance in the moment will most likely, most of them will change over the course of time, but we'll have a new problem. So I have a new problem okay. and the one that we discussed a couple of weeks ago <laughs> and, uh, and that I've, you know, have some degree of emotional distress around and it is related to, I'm, I'm running this, uh, beautiful retreat next weekend. And there's a possibility that it might rain. And the retreat is all designed around being in an outdoor space and these beautiful coffee orchards. And, and what I've ended up finding myself doing is that I have developed compulsive weather checking. I have two apps (laughs) on my phone. I have the weather.com on my safari. And I'm noticing that I'm thinking about the retreat, then getting anxious about the weather, and then going and checking these apps multiple Mm. times throughout Mm. the day. Mm. Okay. (laughs) And every time it says 50% chance, which is just um, the perfect (laughs) perfect probability. Amount of uncertainty. Yeah. 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 I I would so much prefer like a 51 or a 49, but no, it's 50% (laughs) chance. So that is causing me and my mind to do a whole slew of uh, uh, unhelpful Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And there's the the illusion that somehow doing acting on these behaviors is going to shift the outcome or at least protect you from being more disappointed so that you can sort of predict what's gonna happen. Yeah. Right. I want to predict to control mother. (laughs) Of course. The one thing I can't. No biggie, no biggie. Yeah. Um, okay, great. So let's let's use this situation. And um, if you uh, are in a place where you can close your eyes, just so mm-hmm. you can focus more on the emotional experience, that would be great. Um, and I just want to check in as you're thinking about the situation. Can you rate your level of distress about this on a scale of one to ten, with ten being the most distressed you can imagine being? It's fairly high. It's like a six or seven. Okay. Yeah. That's significant. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you're around a six or a seven. So let's move right into the emotion surfing then. And let's start with just focusing on sensations. So if you would just scan your body and notice any sensations. And when you find one that feels um, most prominent, just rest your attention on it and let me know what you're noticing. Yeah, I I feel a lot of tension in my chest area, like right mm. where my kind of where my heart is. Okay. All right, so tension in the chest area. And I wonder if you could just bring an attention of curiosity to that sensation and imagine just making space for it. Um, you might even imagine just welcoming that tension and let's continue to just notice um, and describe that sensation. So, I'm I'm wondering if there's any temperature to it. Is it warm or cold or neutral? It feels cold. Okay, it's cold. All right. And how big is that sensation for you? Is it the size of a golf ball, a tennis ball, grapefruit, watermelon? That's interesting. I think it's about the size of a grapefruit. Okay. So it's cold. It's about the size of a grapefruit. Mm -hmm. And... 
Is it moving at all or is it staying the same? No, it's really stuck. Like okay, so it's yeah. just static. Mm-hmm. And and how intense is the sensation if you were going to rate that on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most intense? I think, again, a 6 maybe. It's around a 6. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. And so I'm wondering if you can identify the specific feelings that go with the sensation. Fear. Fear. Fear of letting people down. Or okay. So it sounds like a thought actually is coming actually, up. Yeah, like more the thought. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to let people down or people yeah. are going to feel let down. So that goes with that sensation. So mm-hmm. I want to invite you to just notice that thought and see if you can let it go and shift your attention back to the sensation. And I'm wondering, what what does this uh, sensation make you want to do or not do? What's the, what's the urge that goes with the so the urge is totally to check my app. Okay. Okay. So you're wanting to look what again. What is the percentage now? Right. Okay. Good. And and so in just sitting with that urge, because we're in this exercise and not acting on it, I'm wondering, if, can you rate how difficult it is to resist acting on that urge? Yeah, it's pretty hard. It's like a seven, maybe. Are there any more thoughts that come up around this sensation or this emotion? I think the thought the thoughts for me are that I just keep on circling back on is I just really want it to be different. <laughs> I really want it to be this day for these people that I want to offer them. And so just honoring that that thought comes up that you know reflects your desire for it to go well, for it to be good for people, but then seeing if you can just let that go and then coming back to the present moment and just noticing again what's happening in your and and how would you rate the intensity now on a scale of one to ten probably down to like a three i mean it's still there but it's not as you know yeah yeah so that's a great shift and and maybe this is a good place for us to stop and um and i just want to before i check in with you i want to just note that this is the place where i would ask a client you know i want i want to shift now into trying to figure out what really matters to you about this, you know, and what would it look like over the next week to act on that mm-hmm. instead of acting on this urge to compulsively check. Right. You know, right. and that could look like so many different things, which we don't have time to get into, but um, so, yeah, so let's check in about the, that brief exercise. Yeah. I mean, I definitely like- felt the, the surge at the beginning of the, you know, extreme emotion and how quickly I could get into the story line about it and the urge and mm-hmm. be, I think, I think the most helpful part for me was being able just to identify that urge to check. And I think that a lot of people have that these days with, particularly with our phones, <laughs> yeah. our phones for a lot of emotional avoidance. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so I think that that actually is something we, that I could benefit, you know, more from is just noticing the urge, the urge to check and staying with it. And I mean, there's, there's so much irony behind all this because the whole event is a, you know, rest and restore wellness event. And it's at a farm and a farm needs water to grow plants. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no. So I think that, that being able to just slow it down and, and feel the full, you know, the full range of the emotion and also being able to notice its, its sensation in my body, which kind of decouples it from the story a little bit. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that can't harm me, just like the weather can't harm the sky. That sensation in my body, no matter how bad it gets and how scary it gets, mm-hmm. it can't harm me. And right, right. That, that exercise helps with really yeah. feeling that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also strikes me that if we were going to do some more work in this situation, that it's your fusion with this belief that if it rains, it's not going to be good. That's causing the suffering. And so we might even consider moving into some radical acceptance or even some perspective take with coping thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is there another way of seeing um, rain happening Mm -hmm. on the weekend of your retreat? Mm -hmm. It could be phenomenal if it rains, right? Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right, right. But it might, yeah, unwittingly enhance the experience somehow or, mm-hmm. um, right. or that it wouldn't, it just wouldn't matter. Yeah. Um, well, but, here we are, we're in Southern California and pretty <laughs> much the last seven years, all we've been doing is praying and doing rain dances. Right. Yeah. And then the rain comes and we don't know what to do with it. We <laughs> we're like, I can't wear my Uggs. 
Exactly. I don't know how to stay dry, but actually being able to open up to this really, it's actually been this really wonderful gift of mm -hmm. having rain here and greening things up and getting us out of drought and all of that. Right, right. It doesn't exactly. all revolve around my event. <laughs> <laughs> well, that already right there it sounds like yeah. you're doing your own perspective taking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I've been working with this. Mm -hmm. So that was really helpful. And I, and I, and I just to kind of break it down that, that, that people could try this out of just, mm -hmm you know, being able to identify the emotion, going into the body, doing what's called, it's called yes. physicalizing an act where you're, you're making this, this thing actually a, a physical form. And it actually gives you a little bit of distance from it when you do that, when you, you know, get its temperature and its shape or people do its color or if it's moving. And that somehow helps us with it not being us, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's a little bit mm -hmm. distant from us. And then as you did, being able to identify the urges and the thoughts as well, and then accept and allow. And just yeah. doing that practice is, yeah. I liked, uh, you know, and you also are checking with what's called subjective units of distress or SUDS mm -hmm. levels throughout mm -hmm. a zero to 10, which helps track when you're, if you're doing this with a client, it helps track yeah. where people are on the wave. And you could do that with yourself. Where am I on the wave? Right. Am I at its peak or am I coming back down? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I wanted to just um, clarify in, in emotion efficacy therapy, we're actually not conceptualizing the observing as distancing as much mm -hmm. as it is um, being able to both have the emotion, but know that that's not all of who you are, mm -hmm. that there's a you be beyond that emotion. Um, I, I just, I, I have a little bit of a reaction <laughs> when mm -hmm. I hear the word distancing, just because I think that can unwittingly reinforce sometimes people's um, sense that this is helping them get away from their emotional yeah. pain. Yeah. And, and ultimately what we want is for people to just be able to experience their pain and, and, but still stay focused on what really matters to them. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So what is, I know that you've done some research on this approach and I'm curious, what has it shown about um, how it's maybe helpful to, to people? And I know it's a shorter program than yeah. the lengthier ACT or DBT protocols. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, not surprisingly, given that EET is an integration of ACT, DBT and exposure, our results um, show that uh, EET has a significant effect on emotion regulation, distress tolerance, and valued living in just eight weeks, mm -hmm. um, which is really exciting because when Matt McKay and I developed the protocol, we were hoping to come up with something that could deliver rapid results. Uh, and it does seem like that's what um, is happening. Um, in fact, uh, we did one trial of EET with people struggling with both mental health problems and addiction. And uh, in that trial, we saw a 50% reduction in relapse rate after just eight weeks of treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's really exciting. Uh, and we continue to do research and, and hope, hopefully we'll, you know, be able to put this on the map and, and offer it to more people as not only a brief therapy, but as a inexpensive and portable therapy that can be done in either a group or individual format. And if clinicians want to learn more about how to do that, how could they uh, get training from you or what would that, what do you have coming yeah. up? No, I appreciate you asking that. <clears throat> um, well, Matt McKay and I have written a book uh, for clinicians and it is a step-by-step -step guide with worksheets and handouts and uh, client therapist uh, scripts so that you know you have examples of how you might introduce the components and work with with your clients. Um, and in addition to that, we also um, have a training scheduled through Praxis Continuing Education um, in September, uh, and I believe it's September twenty first. But um, I can send you the link actually if you. Yeah, we'll put both of those in the show notes. Yeah, and people can look those up and and the the September the training looks like it's in San Francisco for those that, right. that want to be in California. You can go to that and practice is such an excellent uh, training program. So that would be great. And I you know I just really appreciate you for coming on the show and sharing all of your work and being willing to even guide us in a little bit of an experiential exercise, which I oh, think can be vulnerable, thanks. both for the therapist and the person doing it. So both <laughs> sure. of us stepped into some discomfort, even just by doing the exercise on the show. So I appreciate your willingness and courage in doing yeah. that. 
Oh, I appreciate you saying that. Thanks. Yeah. And I I do think that you're, you know, you think your program is really valuable for clinicians and I don't, and just maybe in closing, you could talk a little bit about why, you know, why would this be particularly helpful for therapists to do this? Yeah. You know, I, I don't think therapists talk enough about um, how daunting it can be to work with emotion. And um, in the research I've seen, the majority of therapists say that they are not confident or comfortable doing exposure-based interventions uh, in therapy. And so um, one of the things I love about this protocol is it's, it's just such a simple, straightforward, step-by-step way of working with clients around emotion, around activation. And, you know, what we're teaching clients, even just by doing the exposure in the room is we're teaching them that their emotions are not dangerous, um, that they can experience them and still be okay, that they can experience them and improve their lives. And um, I just think that's a really valuable tool for clinicians to have because once you get ex- once you get comfortable working with whatever emotion shows up in the room, the possibilities are endless. You know, I feel like this emotion efficacy is essentially, I think of it as a superpower that Mm -hmm. it's one of the greatest gifts I think I um, can give to my clients, whether it's in, you know, therapy or coaching. And so, um, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I'm pretty excited about uh, how this can be used and, and shared with other clinicians. Yeah. And I think the magic happens in therapy when both the therapist and the client are willing to step out of mm. their comfort zone. Yeah. And so doing exposure-based uh, therapy is, I think, one of the hardest things to do as a therapist, but it's going to have the biggest impact because you're also modeling to your client that I'm willing to go there with you. Exactly. And therefore, it's safe for you to go there too. So, That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you. I just really appreciate you coming on and look forward to hearing more about your work and some of the trainings that you have coming up and yeah. just wish you the best in the, the rest you. of the day. And thank you for helping me uh, with my own little yeah. struggle I, here. I hope your <laughs> workshop goes well. 50% chance of rain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Okay. okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.